Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Matt. Uh, hi, my name's Matt. I'm a compulsive overeater and 100-pounder. Hi, Matt. Hello. Uh, God, it's so great to see so many people here and so many newcomers. Uh, and I know that some people get intimidated by the amount of time we get here. Um, my thought is, like, that's all I get? You guys are all mine for the next, like, what, three hours? Uh, all right, so I brought pictures so you can see what it used to be like. Um, for those people listening on the podcast, just imagine a heavier dude that is speaking now. Uh, I'll pass these around. All right, so uh, let's get the numbers out of the way. Um, I came into OA a little over three years ago. Uh, my current abstinence is straight up, actually, as of today, three years and two months. Uh, my abstinence date is the day after my anniversary, uh, which was uh, June 26th is the abstinence date. It actually helps me remi- remember my anniversary. Uh, so, um, and what happened, the reason that is, is because I had come in and I was about a month into abstinence, and my abstinence used to be... It, it, my abstinence, my eating plan is what I like to think of as, uh, it's a five, four, three, two, one. Um, I eat five times a day, and I share everything I eat. I tell four people about it. I take a picture and uh, tell my sponsor and three other people what I'm eating whenever I eat it. That's probably the one thing that keeps me abstinent, because I, I've made the connection that I won't eat something without telling someone first. And so, like, when the cookies and candy and whatever looks good, I'm like, God, I don't want to have to deal with the crap that I'm going to get from my sponsor. So, uh, right, it's not like, oh, I could eat that and not tell him. Right? No, no, no. It's that I'm going to eat something, like, I can't eat it without saying something. Like, if I forget to text my sponsor, I'm like, oh, God, what have I done? Uh, so that's part of it. I eat three meals a day, three full meals. Uh I have two fruit snacks, uh, and it's one plate of food at each meal. And the other key part of my abstinence is that I don't, I've been, as a fellow of mine talks about, I have fired myself from the committee that picks my food. Uh, I, I don't do it. And initially when that was brought to me, when somebody suggested that idea, I was like, oh, my God, what are you, crazy? How dare I give up the idea of things that I want to eat? Uh, and I've turn the corner on it, to me, it's like this abject luxury that somebody will, somebody that cares about me, like a fellow or my sponsor or my wife, who I am lucky enough that is a normal eater, will say, hey, can you pick something on the menu for me uh, if we go out? If I'm going out to dinner with friends, I'll send her a picture of the menu uh, or the website and she'll pick something. Uh, You know, for people who've been in OA for years and years, you know, and this probably similar with AA, I don't know how people did it without technology. Like, the, the smartphone is so awesome. Like, you're, I'm always connected to somebody, uh, which is great. So all that to say, that's my abstinence plan. I eat three, I eat three meals a day. It's, it's one plate of food. So that means I'm basically not having any ice cream. I haven't had ice cream in upwards of three and a half years because... I haven't found a place that will serve dinner with ice cream on the plate. Um, right? If I find that place, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, but I haven't found it yet. So, uh, 
going back to what happened on my anniversary night, I'd had this food plan, and my wife and I are at this fancy restaurant in New Orleans, and she's like, hey, you should try this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's not on my plate. She's like, let's trade bites of food. Okay. And as I came back and talked to my sponsor about it, he's like, well, who approved that? And I was like, oh, I did. Uh, and so we started over because I thought, you know what, that was outside of the spirit of what I agreed to. So that was about a month and a half in. I did the reset. And so at this point, I'm three years, two months as of today. So what it was like, uh, I was a power eater, whatever it took. Now, I come from a family with a lot of isms. Uh, my father was a very, very uh, successful alcoholic. Um, he was one of those guys, he made enough money that he never hit the rock bottom that would have made him stop. Um, and my mom was uh, good enough of, you know, good enough Al-Anon that she protected him. Um, you know, it was, oh, dad's got a problem with drinking and driving, then we'll live two blocks from the club. We'll live two blocks from the country club. He can't get into that much trouble. Uh, oh, that's too much trouble? We'll, we'll, you know, they'll move to Palm Springs and live on the course in one of those places that's on the course. So he can't really get into that much trouble until just the golf cart. Uh, so I grew up in a house with a drinker, somebody who drank a lot. And, you know, I remember I was like... 11 or 12. I was 12 and my dad would come home from work and he would ask me to make him a vodka tonic and I would be really unhappy about doing it. So to punish him, I would start putting more and more vodka in it, make him really strong. And he was like, oh, and after a while I got used to him. And then I started thinking, I'm like, God, why is he drunk all the time? Like, well, all right, dummy, you're the one making the super strong drinks for him. Um, so I grew up in this house where People dealt with things by either drinking or eating. And I'm the oldest of four kids. And the way it parsed out in my family is that my dad drinks. I have a sister who is at this point about five or six years sober. No, I'm sorry. She had a relapse. She's nine months sober. Um, she had previously after her second uh, rehab, she had a, she'd gotten about five years uh, had a relapse about nine months ago, but she's back uh, back into her new sobriety. Um, I have another brother who also is a drinker. Um, then my mom and my sister and I eat, and I got the eating thing, um, partly because I didn't, I hadn't really liked alcohol. I, I have a sweet tooth, so uh, it was really all about ice cream, and, and I didn't want to have to go through the work of finding something to drink like as a kid I was eating I was eating as a kid like I would come home and immediately go to the fridge and start eating whenever just out of boredom out of upset um, my mom would push food because that's the environment she came up in and you know she grew up with an alcoholic father and her brothers drank and so it was all this perfect storm um, and I was very much you know raised like a lot of us and especially you know I used to think this was just a dude thing, but it's actually everybody. Like, Western culture, like, we're not supposed to talk about our feelings, right? And with dudes, it's like, no, no, be stoic, be strong, be tough, right? The only emotion you get to feel is rage. Like, you only get to be angry. angry. Like, that's the only masculine emotion that, that most people will act like it's okay. Women, in, in what I have witnessed, are all told, like, don't be upset. Just smile. Just be happy. Like, so we're all screwed, right? Like, we all get, we're all just totally hosed. Like, don't show your emotions, right? And that's lethal. 
right? So what happened with me is that I would eat over them. And the more stressed I would get, the more I would eat. And I didn't start really gaining weight until I stopped playing football in high school. Um, I was always you know, in decent shape. I played football in high school. My senior year, I stopped, and I immediately put on 20 pounds. And then I went to college and put on, like, another 30 pounds. And then it just kept going up and up. And so that's when the yo-yo starts, right? Because I start, I would work out, I would try exercise, I would lose weight, it would come back, it would lose weight. You know, I did two or three rounds of Weight Watchers. Uh, I had actually gone into OA in probably 2003, 2004. I was about 23, 24 at the time. Uh, it's the log cabin over on uh, on Robertson and noped right back out. Like, I just went in, listened for about 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is too real. This is like, I, no, absolutely not. Now, a few years later, I did about 18 months, two years of Al-Anon, and what I got out of that at the time was, oh, it's okay to write off my father. It's okay. I don't have to keep dealing with him. I'm on my own. He, I can tell him to go ask himself, um, which I had done for a long time because I would had this very contentious relationship. Because as we all know, like, if you've got an active alcoholic in your life, like, that's tough to talk to, right? And if at that time, like, I was an active overeater, and so I'm no picnic either, even though, like, I thought, like, oh, I'm the chill guy, I'm happy, I'm relaxed, I'm the party guy, but I'm just, like, miserable all the time. So I went through a lot of bouts of trying to lose weight, and over the years, as I got older and as my life goes on and on, you know, as we all know, the eating works until it doesn't. And so I have to go to more and more extremes to get what I want, right? And probably the most extreme thing I did, we all have our great food stories, right? Like, you know, when I was younger, like, I would go to my mom's house, like, oh, there's nothing to eat, but there's these, like, semi-sweet chocolate chips. All right. Like, oh, these are terrible, but I'm going to keep eating, right? Like, or root through, the, root through the cupboard, and there's nothing but, like, those terrible like, dry crackers that, like, water crackers, right? Like, oh, those are garbage, and there's nothing, but, all right, they're country, and what the hell? Um, like, it didn't matter what it was. Uh, about probably the, one of my best, m- my favorite story about my eating is probably six years ago. Yeah, six, seven years ago. Uh, I'm, I have a pretty high-status job that involves travel, and going to various conventions, like comic conventions. And I get it in my head that I want authentic Chicago deep dish pizza. So I cook up a business trip to go to Chicago for the Chicago Comic-Con so that we can get, so I can get pizza. Um, And it was good. Like, it was great. I'm not going to lie. It was terrific. Uh, you know, I mean, like, $5,000 a slice all in, right? Like, damn, that was good pizza. Uh, and did it again next year. Now, there was legit business out there, and I did make it work for the company. But if I hadn't wanted that pizza, I, like, I was the one driving that trip. So that's what we did. You know, it would come to, like, oh, I need to go out and see the sales team in New York because uh, I want that that feel that's at that Italian restaurant that I like. So let's do that, too. Uh, I, I was a destination eater. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Like, to me, like, oh, I want to know, like, oh, what's new over here? What food did they have? Right? I have southern relatives, uh, so we have all that good food. Uh, I have Lebanese relatives. So 
one of the things that's, that's come for me that's a little frustrating is that one of my trigger foods is Mediterranean food um, because I grew up with that stuff. And so even though that's relatively healthy, as on the spectrum, right, it's not pizza, it's not fried chicken, uh, I go to a Mediterranean place and the smells and the, uh, it brings back so much emotion that it's really hard for me to stop at one plate. And it's, it's become this, like, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so I had a lot of uh, insane food behaviors. And what, you know, to the point that I had had a heart problem. Um, I got at one point, I was traveling and ended up with uh, a cough. And I would get this cough every year around... February, and I thought that it was because I'd gotten bronchitis when I had gone to uh, Park City in February, um, and about at, like the third year that that happens, I go to see my doctor, because I, the cough wouldn't go away one year, uh, it just wouldn't, and so, you know, at this point, I'm probably 240 pounds, and I go to the doctor, and he's not really sure, and I make an appointment with a pulmonologist, and they do an x-ray. And the x-ray, he looks at the x-ray, he's like, your lungs are fine. And I've had a history of asthma. He's like, your lungs are fine, but your heart's enlarged. Right? Big heart, good. Enlarged heart, not so much. Uh, I had uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, which is a stiffening of the ventricle wall. Uh, and the way it would manifest itself is that when I would lie down and try and sleep, I would cough. And it turns out that's congestive heart failure. Uh, yeah. So they measure how that ventricle works by what they call the ejection fraction, right? How much does it take in versus how much does it pump out? And if it takes in, it's supposed to be like 55%. So if it takes in 50 cc's of blood, it should be putting out about 25 or so, a little over 25. I was down to 10 to 15% ejection fraction with what, with what they call regurgitation, which means it's going the wrong way, right? And so the doctor's like, yeah. So they send me to this uh, cardiologist who tells me all this and he says, don't leave town uh, because you don't want to have something go on. I was like, well, I was just in Fiji with some friends running around the islands uh, and coughing the whole time um, because I wasn't taking care of my blood pressure. I had really high, like crazy high blood pressure because I'm like, oh, what happens if you don't take blood pressure medication? Turns out uh, you will destroy your heart. Uh, I've done the field research and believe me, when they tell you take your blood pressure medication, you should do it. So uh, I had this heart failure, and that didn't stop me from eating. In fact, part of how I dealt with the grief and fear of that was continue to eat. I gained another 10 pounds, right? Um, and then, you know, and part of that is they send me over to uh, UCLA to get on the transplant list. And the, guy, the doctor at the transplant list says, look, here's, here's, here's your challenge. When they do transplants, they're looking typically, especially for hearts, to match someone of the same body type. And we don't get a lot of really healthy hearts from dudes in their late 30s that are 250 pounds. It's like, okay. So that didn't really help me lose any weight at all. Like, I just didn't. I just, you know. Now, where I got lucky was I ended up regaining full function basically just on a medication regimen. And the, pulmon the cardiologist had said that it, they thought it was something possibly viral, aggravated by my, uh, by my blood pressure medication. And between that and, and between the blood pressure medication and something else, like, it, it all worked out. Um, a miraculous recovery. Didn't lose any weight at all. Right? Didn't, not, not one bit. 
So cut to, uh, I get this new job. And right around the time I get this new job, I get back in touch with the woman that is now my wife, um, who I've known since high school. And she had, at the time, a four-year-old son, who is now, well, became my stepson, is now actually my son. And we end up moving in together and eventually married. And, you know, I'm trying to be a father figure to this kid and trying to be a good husband. And I had lived by myself for a long time. And what got me to the rooms was after having two extra people in my house for a couple of years, like, this is unmanageable. Like, I'm, I could see myself going down the road and acting the way my father had done. Like, my father couldn't process whatever was going on. And so his acting out was drinking, right? And I used to think, oh, he took it all out on us. Well, yeah, but that was, you know, what I've, what I've come to realize is that is a, that's a symptom of how he was just trying to deal. So I saw that. And the other issue I had was, like, I know that I don't want to orphan this kid. Like, I don't want to be, his parents had split up. His dad was living in Arizona. He never saw his dad. I don't want to be somebody that just drops out on this kid again. So I'm trying to lose weight. That's not really working. And I have a friend who basically 12-stepped me. Like, he was, we were taking a class. This is the guy that I'd known for years. And we kept taking a series of classes. And over, like, six or seven months, I see him lose probably 60, 70 pounds. And after, like, the third time I asked him, and I said, hey, man, what are you doing here? Like, how, how are you doing it? And initially, it was the same answer I used to give people. It was like, you know, I'm just working on my weight. I'm just, you know, trying to be healthier. And, like, the third time, he's like, I'm doing OA. And I was like, What? And, it's, and it made such a difference that it was someone I knew that had gone through this. And so I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I looked up, and there was a meeting close to where I live on Witsit uh, at the, at the um, Christian Science Church, right? And it turns out there's a meeting there almost every morning. And so I really didn't have any excuse. So the first meeting I go to, I go and I sit there the whole time, and I then go and get breakfast at McDonald's because it was, like, too scary. But I went back the next day. And I've seen, you know, over the years, my sister had gone through a couple different bouts of rehab. And look, like, you live in Southern California, you're going to know some people in 12-step programs, right? Like, <laughs> right? It's just, like, one of the, amongst the benefits, amongst the abject luxuries of living here is that people will be open about that, right? It's not, whereas, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, to be, you know, I go back to Kansas City, like, there's no OA meetings. I go to Louisiana, like, slide out. There's nothing there, right? It's like, you've got to really work for it. Here in L.A., like, it's, you know, there's, there was no excuse for me not to go. I live, you know, four minutes from where that, you know, five minutes from where that, uh, where those meetings are every morning. So I could see where I'm going. I can see how I'm miserable. I can see how, like, I'm so afraid of messing up Gabriel, my little kid. I'm so terrified of that, that that's the thing that, you know, coupled with, like, I don't want to die early. So that's what brings me to LA. And pretty much right off the bat, I got a sponsor. And my sponsor says, okay, are you willing to have one plate of food at each meal today? I was like, yeah, okay. I don't want to, but I will. He was like, for lunch, we have a salad? I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll have a salad. And he's like, what about snacks? And I was like, well, I snack all day. Because I was a guy who, like, by the end of the day in my office, I would, you know, at one point, I'm like, I was like, oh, I need a recycling bin and a uh, garbage can in my, in my office so that by the end of the day, they'd both be full. 
right? Like, they'd be, there'd be soda cans in one and whatever, and then it would be overflowing with food stuff, like food wrappers and chips and whatever meals and, you know, whatever. Tons and tons and tons of stuff. So, uh, I, that's, it's like, okay, I'll try that for a day and see what I can do. So that's what I did. I, I ate the way he told me. And he said, and, you know, he says, text me. Text me and text these two other people to do that and tell them what you're eating. You know, tell them I told them. Tell them I told you to tell them what you're eating. Okay. It's like, I don't know these guys. He's like, they won't matter. It doesn't matter. They want it. It's helping them. It's like, that's crap. But sure. Uh, so I did it that first day. And I go back to the meeting the next morning. And he's like, did it work yesterday? I was like, yep. He's like, do it again today. He's like, okay. That's, that's. Is that easy? He's like, it's not easy. It's that simple. Okay. So I kept doing that. And at some point in the years of being exposed to 12-step, I'd heard enough people talk about 30 and 30s that I was like, okay, I'm going to do a 30 and 30 because I just know that I need it. And so I did. And I am mostly, you know, doing that same rhythm. I go to meetings five, six days a week still, because I need it, because I'm bonkers, right? Like my, my, because my brain tells me the way to fix my problems is to put a pacifier in my mouth. And for me, that pacifier is food, right? Um, after a while, you know, after a few months of my abstinence, and my first, as I'm working my first few steps, you know, I, I like to drink because the whole idea of, like, tiki drinks and sweet stuff, and, like, that was the whole, like, persona that I thought was really fun. But I could always just turn it off if I needed to. And three or four months into my abstinence, like, oh, boy, booze looks real interesting now. Uh, yeah, right? Um, did every, as did everything else. Like, oh, shopping. Oh, yeah, let's do shopping. Oh, I could, I could go down a size? Oh, yeah, let's do that. And I was like, no, we don't have that much money. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, it was all kind of, right? Like, I, could, I can see at any given time, I can see my disease you know, one of the guys that I met early on in the program talked about he looks at his, he very much anthropomorphizes his disease. And to him, his disease is a supervillain. And mine's not far off. Like, mine is this, like, you know, this, this like, evil little figure behind a curtain, like, just waiting to pounce, right? Just waiting. And it's like, okay, you got the food under control. How about, what about this? Look how interesting that is, right? Like, look at that over there. And it's like, oh, okay, that's, yeah, look, you can, get a, you can get a high off this, right? And it almost doesn't matter what it is, right? You can get a high and not be present. Because the thing is, and, and you know, there's somebody I know that talks about, he doesn't have a food problem, he's got a coping problem. That's absolutely me. I got a coping problem, right? I don't like to cope. I don't want to cope. I, want, I don't want any trouble. Like, I literally don't want any trouble. I, at all, right? I just want everything to be easy. Guess what? That's not the way life works. Um, and that's crap, uh, right? So I started working the steps. And, you know, like a lot of us who've gone through the steps, that first two, three months of abstinence, I was a raw nerve. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I would just sit in those meetings and cry. Because I had all, you know, I was so scared of the emotions, right? I was so scared of, like, I've got all these feelings. I've got all this anger and all this pain. And what am I going to do with it, right? Because I would imagine in my head, like, I kept stuffing it down. And it was, it was like that scene in the night at the opera where they open the stateroom door and everybody spills out. I was so afraid of that. I was so afraid that, like, if I open this a crack, I'm just going to rage, right? And it's never going to stop. Um, and that wasn't the case, right? Because 
I, as in working the steps, it taught me how to handle things, or not handle things. Handle is the wrong word. It taught me to let things go. It taught me to just accept, right? Whatever it was, just accept, if that was the right thing to do. Change what needed to be changed, if I could figure out the difference, right? And nine times out of ten, it's accept, right? It's probably 99 times out of 100. Some stuff, yeah, it's appropriate for me to kind of change, but far less than I ever thought. So, and I was one of those people, you know, I used to like to tell myself that I was not a control freak. <laughs> right? It's like, well, if I convince someone that they think it's their idea, then that's not me controlling them. That's, that, they, they just obviously know that's the smart, right thing to do, right? Because I thought I was smarter than everybody. You know, and again, like, right, because I thought it was a good idea to deal with life and whatever frustration by eating over it. How smart is that? Uh, but I get it, right? So I started working the steps, and when I came to realize, and this is, you know, amongst the things that I've learned on this journey, is that, you know, one of the things I tell sponsees, and, and when we talk to newcomers, it's, you know, and, and especially sponsees early in the program, like, you've got to get abstinent so that you can work the steps, right? You have to, because it's really hard to work the steps. Like, if, because if you're not abstinent, or if you're getting high someplace, like, you don't need the steps, right? Like, if you're getting, or you, like, at least for a while, right? And for a long time, look, like, for a long time, the eating worked for me, right? I had a good career. I was, I was moving forward. Like, it all worked, right? I'm not going to say that it never worked, but it works until it doesn't, and it stopped working. Now, I'm lucky that it stopped working for me before I you know, keeled over from a heart attack or got myself divorced or whatever. Um, but it did work, right? And so if you're, in, if you're acting out on your addiction, you're not going to need to work the steps because it's not going to make any sense, right? So when you're, when you're absent or sober or whatever, you know, whatever flavor you need to do, pardon the flavor word, uh, then you need the steps to actually stay abstinent. Right, because it's not you can't just stop eating. You can't just like what I've realized is that you know what I learned from all the dieting I've done over the years was yeah, sure I could I could lose weight for a bit, right, for a little while, but then something would happen and I'd get me all spun up and I just would have no choice but to start eating again. So I needed the fellowship. I needed the support of everybody in the rooms. I needed these rules these steps to help me deal with life and help me just be able to accept and move through life. And it's made such a difference. And, and all of the stuff, all of the anger and hatred and pain and fury and stuff that I was holding on to that I let define me is, is dissipating. And, and that's the miracle, right? And, and it, I'm so blessed in so many ways, not the least of which is having a sister who was sober and, I could call her up and compare notes, right? Because, look, those of us, those people that have been in different programs, you know that there's a different, it's all same, basically the same thing, but there's going to be different, you know, kind of focuses and different aspects. So I could call my sister up and compare notes, and that was awesome. That was such a gift. And I remember at one point I was probably still working my third step, and I was, you know, like I was terrified of the fourth step. Like, I don't want to make a list of stuff that I've done. This could be terrible. Um... You know, and then my sponsor and the literature says, like, well, your inventory list, it's not just garbage. Like, you're making the list of good and bad. I was like, oh, what, really? Oh, okay. And 
it was not as terrible. It's like, oh, I don't want to have to read all this to somebody, right? And, you know, my sponsor did, and everybody knows this who's gone through it, right? Like, you tell something that you'd like, I know that I'm going to say this particular thing, and I'm going to get my ass kicked. They're going to just be like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard, right? We're all, we've all had that fear, right? And so I'm going through stuff, and my sponsor's like, yep, okay, what's it next? Okay, what else you got? I was like, wait, what? Right? And, you know, you, you come in as a newcomer, and people are telling their stories, and it's like that, that fellowship, that understanding, it's, you know, we're not alone. It's, it's so amazing. Like, that's the key. And so as I go through the steps, you know, all of the, you know, I used to think of all of my unhappiness as like this blanket of thorns and filth. And that was my armor. And it was hurting more, me more than it hurt anyone else around me. But by God, it was mine. Um, and it actually didn't really work, but I thought it did. And as, I, as that has dissipated, uh, it's happened because of the steps. And I realized, like, oh, I don't have to hold on to all this stuff. So as I was doing my ninth step, because my sister at one point says, you know, the ninth step, that's where the miracles happen. I was like, what? I don't want to have to apologize. To, right? Everybody else. Who, who else has said, I don't want to have to apologize to all these people. Right? Um, oh, wait. That's, it's not just apologies. I mean, sure. Where appropriate, there are apologies. But that's not what it was. And so where I started going through, and, and at that time, I, you know, my list of people I'd harmed, number one was my, the person I was carrying the most resentment about was my father. Just absolutely. And when I made the list of people that I had harmed, my sponsor says, your father's not on the list. I'm like, nope. <laughs> nope. Not even ready to deal with it. And I would talk about in meetings, I would share in meetings like that when I first started, I hadn't talked to my father in probably two years. And he would reach out and I would ignore him. And I knew that giving him the silent treatment, I knew I was actively hurting him. And I would cop to that. I was like, I'm, acti- I'm doing this because I'm lashing out. And as I got farther along, like, that stopped making sense. And so as I'm going through my ninth step and making my amends, I was like, oh, right, I, I can't. And, and he wasn't even on the list of people to make amends to. And so I talked to my sponsor. I'm like, you know what, i got to talk to my dad. And so about, about a year ago, uh, I call him up. And I said, hey, next time you're in town, can we get together? And he was so surprised. He's like, yeah, that'd be great. And so we get together. We go to breakfast, and I sit down, and I was like, hey, look, I, I have to acknowledge, like, I haven't been talking to you for years because I was angry, and I knew it was hurtful, and I just can hope you can forgive me. I, that's, you know, and it wasn't about, like, what he did. It was, I hope someday you can possibly forgive me because I've been actively trying to hurt you. And he was, like, in tears. He was like, of course, of course. Now, my father, you know, was still the same, you know, hard-drinking, pot-smoking, heavy gambler, lunatic that he's been. Um, but the gift my mom gave me, and this is, you know, the gift of working the steps and being surrounded by addicts is that I was able to realize, oh, he's an addict, and there's something in his life that caused this, right? And so part of me getting to there with my father is, is you know, and this is like five years after my parents divorced, which was only like... You know, this was, they actually only divorced a few years ago. My mom comes over, because I'd asked her to do this. I'm like, I want to know about the man you married. I don't know, like, not the guy that I think I know. Like, who was it? Because to hear my brother and I tell it, my mom walks on water. So 
what was there. So we sat for two hours. She told me about how he grew up and what he was like and the challenges he had. And, and I could see that this was a guy who was incapable of seeing the love that was presented to him. And in many cases, it wasn't and was desperate for validation and had these demons and he just had to drink them away. Right. And I understood like, oh, the tragedy of my father was that he couldn't see anything that was real for him that was actually there. And I was so blessed that I feel, you know, if, if yet, you know, amongst the blessings that this program has given me is, you know, I've lost over 100 pounds. I am so much more at peace. And it's a lot of work, but I'm so much more at peace. But I got to make peace with my father before he died last month. Um, and that was huge, huge. That was, that was, I'm, I will, I can only imagine the headspace I would be in if I hadn't made peace with him. Um, you know, I saw him at Christmas, saw him for his birthday, was in his wedding, uh, when he remarried a few months back. Uh, and I would, and he was, again, just as much an active addict as he ever was, but I could, you know, the gift of the program is I could finally see him as human. And when he died, I thought, you know, and I said to my wife and I said to my mom, you know, to me, my vision of heaven from, for dad is that he could actually see his exact same life, but he could see that people actually loved him because this was a guy who couldn't. And there but for the grace of God go I, right? And look, like, I'm a guy who I wrestle with the concept of a higher power. I absolutely do. I, you know... I'm often all but convincing myself I'm an atheist. And so for me, a lot of times, giving things up is this mantra of like, you don't have to fix this. This is not your problem. This is just going to go on. Like, don't do anything. Just relax. Uh, you know, to me, giving, you know, sometimes the higher power is the program. Sometimes it's family. Some, you know, it, it's a lot of times the praying is, it's, for me, it's a lot of redirecting the way I thought, right? I had this job for about 10 years that I left about a year ago, and partly because there was a guy I was working for that I couldn't stand. And somebody in the program says, you should pray for that person. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should pray for that they get the things you want for yourself. I was like, oh, oh, that was infuriating. But it worked, right? Because I started praying for this guy. Like, I want him to have satisfaction. I want him to feel fulfilled at work. I want him to not feel undermined. I want him to feel productive. And what that forced me to do was to look at that person as human, right? Because it's real easy for me to like, oh, that person's an a-hole. Like, I hope they just dropped it or whatever, right? Like, I, it's easy to write people off, especially in the car, right? I'll know that I'll really hit serenity when I stop cursing people out in the car, right? That's like the last bastion of being able to like be a rage monster. Uh, I do get better about that, but over the years, it's been, you know, these three years that I've been here, I've found myself being able to let things go, and, you know, being able to let go all of that, you know, all of those kind of chips on my shoulder and all of those wounds that I was still tending around my father, it was like, oh, he's broken. He was broken. But, you know, I can also remember that my father was capable of great stuff. Not to turn this into something like, my dad was the guy who, best Christmas we ever had was he, and this was all him. He put together a trip that we took a bunch of presents. He hired a Santa. We took a bunch of presents to the burn center at Shriners Hospital and gave out presents to the kids there on Christmas morning because my father 
couldn't accept that those kids weren't going to have a Christmas. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And so I could see that my my dad's best vision of him, the best version of himself, that's what that was. And I was and I'm blessed that the program has allowed me to be present and see those things in people. So where I'm at now is that, you know, for a long time, like I would you know, it's it's so awesome to like get upset about politics, right? Because it's stuff that like none of us can really like day to day. It's hard, like the amount that we can actually change. Like it takes so much work, and it and it's and so much of it is dumb luck. But boy, it really like lets us be righteous, right? Like righteous anger. Oh God, that's the best. And almost no matter what it is, right? Like, and I can argue the opposite side of anything because I'm I'm you know I'm great at picking fights, right? I grew up in an alcoholic household. Who who isn't great at that? Uh, but now it's somebody's, you know, somebody will say something. I'm like, all right, great. Does that work for you? Cool. Right on. Like, I, I find myself becoming one of those people that it's, hey, I, you know, I feel this way. Or, you know, I was talking to one of my sponsees about how, just today, about how he was really mad about a phone call with his cable provider that didn't go the way he wanted it to. And that it degenerated into him being really upset about, or, on the tangent was him really being upset about like, you know, some people just like, they can be sleazy and they can make money at it. I'm like, all right, great. Good for them. Right. Like, okay, that works for them. They can look for themselves in the mirror. Not my problem. Right. And I don't mean that to be glib. It's like, Hey, if that works for that person, yeah, that'd be kind of cool to be, maybe that might be kind of cool. I know that that doesn't work for me. Right. There are people out there that I, sure. I still judge people. I still have like these intro, like, Ugh, I wouldn't do that. But I remind myself often, like, oh, does that work for them? Like, maybe it works. Who am I to say, right? Again, like, I remind myself every day, who am I to say? I used to think, I still think, like, I still, make no mistake, like, I'd still love to be able to go get pizza, right? Absolutely. I would love to be able to eat with impurity. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. But I can't, right? Uh, I fought putting pizza on my red light food list for a long time. For a long time, the best I could do was, I'm not having pizza today, right? There's not pizza in front of me. But that day, you know, that one day at a time thing, like, that's so key, right? It's because one of the things I, I tell myself and I tell my sponsees this a lot is you just got to make it to bedtime. That's it. Like, that's it. You just got to get to the end of the day. That's it, right? Because when I would think, like, what? How am I never going to have ice cream again? You know, and early on in the program, it was like, if I told myself that, I would go out and get a whole, like, tub. Like, I'd go break into a Baskin Robbins. I used to work at an ice cream shop. Believe me, I, like, I know how to really maximize ice cream. Uh, yeah, right? Like, I'm the guy who, when I worked at an ice cream shop in my, as a teenager, like, we're going to make a shake with one spoonful of every ice cream. And it was good. Absolutely. Uh, right? I could, you know... Uh, my wife for a while would have to like she would get cookies for my kid and like they'd have to be in the trunk of the car because I my insanity wasn't such that I would actually go out to the car at night and get those cookies but if they were in the house now there's like goldfish now there's kid food in the house all the time and like you know what that's not my food right um, you know I, I don't often talk about and I'll wrap up like I don't often talk about crazy food behaviors to me the god shot was my first week of abstinence was uh tough, and we get, you know, one of the PR companies that we had contact with sent over two boxes of donuts. And, you know, I would eat donuts till I was, like, my stomach hurt, and that just meant weight, 
right? Give it another half hour. You can have another donut. And then eat the rest of them all day. One of the boxes, they were for a horror, a horror movie. One of the boxes of donuts, the donut spelled out, this is how you die. I was like, well, I guess that's a sign. Uh, so I have not had a donut since then. So, um, you know, and I'll wrap up real quick. Like, you know, what I will say, especially to the newcomers, you know, this stuff, like, I'm on the backside of where the miracles happened, right? And, and I can't point to where it did, right? As my sister said, it probably is partway through the ninth step. But it's a day-to-day thing. It doesn't change overnight. But really, like, if you're struggling, talk to somebody, reach out. The food's not going to fix it. It isn't, right? And again, like, you just got to make it to bedtime. If you can make it to bedtime, that's it. And if you think you can't make it to bedtime, call somebody. Call somebody. Call me. Call me, right? Because I probably need that help, too. So thank you very much.